Okay, everybody, welcome to episode two of the From the Earth to the Moon podcast. I'm Doug, joined by my colleague, uh, Peter. Welcome, Peter. Welcome, Doug. And we're the same uh, Peter and Doug from Popcorn Drink Combo, a movie podcast as well. So if you like this, you should check out Popcorn Drink Combo. Um, Today, we are going to be talking about episode two, uh, known as Apollo One. Uh, before we go any further, I just had a quick question for you. My question is, how are we going to get to the moon if we can't talk between three buildings? What? <laughs> and I wish to actually do this whole podcast like with static and garble. I didn't like their simulated static. It sounded simulated. Um, so this uh, this entire episode deals with the, the famous so-called plugs out test. Um, where uh, there was a fire in the uh, command module of Apollo 1 and astronauts uh, Gus Grissom, a Mercury veteran, uh, Ed White, first American to do an EVA, and uh, rookie Roger Chaffee uh, lost their lives. In a matter of um, seconds. And a yeah, blowout no fire. Yeah. yeah, about 15 seconds, I think, was the whole thing. Um. So the the fire occurs um, at uh, six twenty one uh, p.m. on uh, what was it? It was a January nineteen sixty seven. Yeah, I don't remember. Yeah, it's January sixty seven. January sorry, January twenty seventh, uh, nineteen sixty seven. Fifty one years ago. Um, so um, the episode focuses on the fire, but it also focuses heavily on the aftermath of the fire, including the investigation. Um, the efforts of uh, then, uh, I guess, Senator Mondale um, and um, sort of competing uh, people at both NASA and at North American uh, trying to protect themselves as the investigation goes on with the NASA administration, um, the focus being on, to some extent, Joe Shea and the uh, North American administration, the focus being Harrison Storms. Um, I guess we also have Chris Kraft um, and uh, Jim Webb and others playing a role in this whole thing. Yeah, um, and Deke Slayton also sort of features hev- heavily along, you know, sort of the three major characters, I guess, or most major characters are in this are, are Deke Slayton and um, uh, Harrison Storms and Joe Shea. Right, they're really the focus. Right, and then Frank um, Borman, to a certain extent, Mondale, sort so yeah, of supporting. Frank, and then, by the way, the guy that plays Frank Borman really, really looks like Frank Borman. Like, some of these guys he don't does. look so good, but the guy who plays Frank Borman looks terrific. Um, so um, we start off essentially with the actual fire itself. Uh, we, uh, we see the fire. Um, you know, we see and we experience the crew's frustration at the difficulties they are having with the communication system. Um, and it is conveyed to us that the hatch opens inward. And as the capsule overpressures from the fire, um, they can't open the capsule inward. It's physically impossible, even for adult strong males. Um, and uh, I thought that the fire scene is pretty well done. Uh, I mean, they spent some they spent a lot of money rebuilding uh, a set of the white room. Um, or whatever, the white room at the time. Um, 
and the actual original Block 1 Apollo 1 capsule, which doesn't look the same as the Apollo capsule that goes to the moon later on. What did you think of the, the fire scene? I thought it was it was pretty well done. Um, it, it's maybe not as visceral except for the explosion. But the thing, I just... I. I I really I like this episode as a probably more than you did kind of as a as a whole because I feel like this the show really kicks off. I think ep- the first episode is almost a preamble because there it's like like I described it as the cliff notes um of the series to bring you up to speed. And they do a good mm-hmm. job, but you know, how much fun can you ever have reading cliff notes? You just they're never fun. The best cliff notes in the world are still cliff notes. Whereas this this episode it digs into a topic and it tries to, it explores one particular episode more than really any other, anything but a documentary or documentarian book or film uh, or, or show has. And it really, I really, I think they did a great job showing um, what changed as a result of Apollo showing the, way people felt at the time from multiple kind of sides showing the effect on on people and they really kind of swept around they they keep moving the camera around to show different aspects but i i found it really engrossing this episode as compared to the first one especially yeah i think i think for me the first episode is very inspiring this is you know this is not an inspiring event this is you know a, a an error that could have been avoided that you know cost the lives of three American astronauts. It's a tougher episode to swallow. It's grim. Um, yeah. It's really it's grim. It's a grim and, event. And, it's sort of, and it makes them all sort of ask, you know, why are they doing this thing and are they willing to go all the way and do whatever it takes to, you know, to get the thing done? Um, the fire scene is good. I like the way that the fire is shown both from inside uh, the capsule. It's also shown as people hearing it in mission control and you sort of get this sort of sense of panic scrambling in the white room you know after the explosion where they're running around with fire extinguishers trying to put out the fire but by then it's already too late and it it rolls out kind of in real time so the whole thing's very fast you know there's not a lot of sort of slow motion shots until after the explosion so the explosion is surprising because it's you know, basically the, the guy grabs a fire extinguisher, runs towards the capsule and it explodes and, you know, breaches, uh, not at the hatch, but the, the capsule. Literally, yeah. The pressure vessel of the capsule itself fractures. Right. It fractures and there's a burst of flame and hot gas that just shoots out of the, the capsule. Um, and, uh, th- that the exterior view of it, just the violence, the heat, um, is is remarkable and also you know it it comes quickly so i think it it just gives you a sense of how absolutely fatal an event it was and it it wasn't like people had time it wasn't there really was no recovery from it no i I mean like i mean like we we said they were they were dead in seconds i mean the, the the pressure was so high the temperature was so high they were literally dead in seconds right and then we uh, cut to Joe Shea in his office heading home for the night where he's informed that something has happened at the Cape. And that's sort of our introduction to Joe Shea. And then we see all three of the astronauts' wives essentially getting the news in one form or another. Right? Pat White comes home 
with her kids. Right, and another uh, and wife. There's, and there's Jan Armstrong there. And there's Standing no words there. in that scene. They just see each other. Uh, we get to see a bit of a hard-bitten Betty Grissom. Um, and if, if, if Betty Grissom is anything like she was portrayed in, for example, The Right Stuff, you can understand why she was hard-bitten. And then we see uh, Mike Collins uh, visiting with Martha Chaffee. Yeah. Um, you know, that, you know, that is funny because that's a scene, you know, where the wives are shown. That's a scene that could be done for schmaltz, right? You could have screaming and wailing. And it's, it, it, it's almost more effective, I think, that they did it in more of a downplayed way. You know, these are the wives of military pilots who have seen a lot of other people come and go, killed in accidents. We've already learned in the first episode that, you know, astronauts die in accidents. Um, so, you know, that that patina of risk has already been spread over the family lives. So it was interesting that the wives took it pretty soberly, especially, for example, Betty Grissom, just, you know, as she's sort of chain smoking, saying she's got to call Gus's parents. Yeah. Right? She's already thinking of, like, what do I have to do? What's the next steps here? Yeah. Um, and then it, it has a tremendous effect on on particularly Joe Joe Shea and Stormy Harrison Storms right, from North right. American. We'll, we'll get to that. Yeah, let's get to that. I'm just trying to stick in order. Um, and then uh, then there's there's open discussion of the fact that many of the astronauts would have been comfortable with the idea of dying on a mission. Right. The right. idea of dying in space or on reentry or in some sort of launch mishap but doing, is much more emotionally acceptable to them than dying in a test. Right. A, you know, doing an, you could argue that a right, a, a, a boiler plate dull test that they've done since Mercury. Right. It's like it's like dying at the water cooler, basically, for them, instead of, you know, storming the beach. <laughs> right, yeah. This is the opposite of storming the beach. Right, it's dying. It's dying. Right, it's taking. It's choking on a you know a hot dog in front of the water cooler in the office, basically. Ignominious. <laughs> Ignominious is the word. Yeah. And then we are introduced. And to these Senator are guys. Mondale. And these are guys who who are are very sensitive to ignominy. You know, they're not. Uh, they're not. They don't take that that very easily. No, no. Um, and then we and then we are introduced uh, to, to Senator Walter Mondale of Minnesota, right, who is essentially our episode's villain. Right. Right. Played by none other than Mad Men's John Slattery. Right. Right. He was Roger on Mad Men all those years. Right. Um, and, you know, it's funny because, I mean, Mondale is portrayed as almost a mustache twirling villain in this episode. You know, he's he's out to get NASA and cut their budget and stop them from going to the moon is kind of how he's portrayed in this. Right. There's one scene um, where he explains himself and takes a little bit off of the top of that, but it's not not much. He says that, you know, they're basically he says, you know, there are uh, children starving. There are et cetera, et cetera. There are th problems, in other words in the country that we have to take care of with the money and the money's going to, to, to killing astronauts when we should be spending it on, on food and health care at home. And we have plenty of problems not to spend the money on, on rocket, um, you know, moonshots. And, you know, I mean, I think that they give him a valid point, although he's presented as a bit of a straw man character so that they can just sort of take him apart later in the episode with, 
you know, good old American optimism and idealism is voiced um, by Frank Borman when we get to the the the, um, the actual investigation scene. And then really, you know, once we meet Mondale, the it shifts the entire episode shifts to the Apollo one review board and focuses on North American and NASA, who are very, very worried about blame. Uh, Ronnie Cox plays uh, Lee Atwood of North American. Ronnie Cox, by the way, known to many of us as Captain Jellico from Star Trek The Next Generation uh, in two episodes. Um, you, you did it. <laughs> of course. Um, and, you know, I like, you know, it's funny because I'm not a huge Kevin Pollack fan. Uh, I, you know, he, he always kind of plays the same guy, the sort of like, yeah, William Shatner. Stra well, he always, well, when he's not mimicking Shatner, he always plays a sort of like stress screaming, you know, husband in some sort of family drama. But I thought this was a really uh, good, good performance by, uh, by Pollock. You know, it's understated, you know, his performance is all about guilt. I mean, Joe Shea is literally racked with guilt over the loss of, you know, these astronauts who were also his friends. And we see through several flashback scenes that, you know, there were good times between Joe Shea and Harrison Storms and the astronauts kidding around, relaxing, you know, heading out to dinner after a long day at work. Um, and he feels, like I said, tremendous guilt over the fact that these guys died under the program that he is manager of. Oh, yeah. He he's and he also um, he he's isolated in his guilt. He can't really. He, there's no one he can talk to about it. And ironically, Stormy, who it seems like he's pretty good friends with, until they sort of run into each other head to head when the investigation gets rolling, is probably right, when the, their jobs are on the line. All of a sudden, right, everything and, crumbles. You know, and ironically, those two are probably the two that, even though they're not. They weren't astronauts themselves, but they were probably the most um, taken aback, the most miserable and, and most guilt-ridden in some ways, um, you know, in this episode. So they are sort of, uh, they're a pair, you know, they, they he could have talked, if he was going to talk to anyone, Stormy would probably be the person to talk to. And, you know, in the end, there's a denouement where they do talk. Yeah, and we'll get to that. That's actually my favorite scene of the entire episode. Yeah, that's a good um, scene. And then uh, we are shown that the spacecraft is meticulously disassembled part by part with extensive documentation in parallel with another uh, Apollo command module so they can look for any deviations. Uh, sort of like uh, like we saw both with the, the Challenger and the Columbia disasters where, you know, for both of those, you saw the spacecraft completely disassembled and laid out for the parts that they were able to recover. Um, and there's a, a really interesting scene where a socket wrench is found stuck in the wall. Oops. Uh, which, which allows NASA to start to point some fingers at North American and is able to sort of echo some of, for example, Gus Grissom's uh, anti-mortem concerns with North American, which the astronauts didn't have about McDonnell Douglas, where they felt that there was a lot more flexibility uh, in terms of manufacturing both the Mercury and the Gemini spacecraft that they didn't feel like was there with Apollo and the the North American guy's explanation is well this is just a much more complicated spacecraft and one change leads to 10 others and we have to be careful about that but again it's very difficult for North American to explain away that socket wrench right 
the socket wrench made me think of the foam, the, the foam strike on Columbia. You know, like it had, mm-hmm. like it's just something that should have been avoided or figured out, or that they should have known better at that point in the program. Like there's there is no way, or there's no way around explaining it. You know, like it's just it's a terrible terrible error um and then harrison stormers responds by you know turning the blame back around at joe shea over the velcro the velcro and the oxygen right so we are we are informed that uh, velcro doesn't really burn at room air but when it's in a pressurized 100 percent oxygen environment uh, it burns both like, readily and rapidly burns yeah it goes like dry kindling shoom. It's they give a nice demonstration. Um, and, and I think that, you know, the Velcro scene is really the counterbalance to the socket wrench scene because it right. shows that everyone is making errors. Right. This is a multifactorial, you know, problem. Right. It was construction. It was wiring. It was the Velcro. It was the pressurization. It was the hatch. Right. You can yep. all of a sudden. Right. You you have a cascade of failures that lead to these three astronauts dying. And, you know, it's very difficult, I think, to point to any one failure. Right. And that's they, the actual final cause. Right. And, and they dramatize that fairly well by. By showing, for example, in the disassembly, the guy who says, you know, the engineer in NASA who says, I, I feel responsible because I was on the commission about when Gus Grissom's hatch blew and I basically was showing that it could have gone off by accident. So they took the explosive bolts off the Apollo capsules. And, you know, if that thing had explosive bolts, they, they would have lived because the bolts, the, the hatch would have blown off, which, you know, probably still wouldn't, wouldn't have lived. But, um, you know, it's, they're trying to show the complexity of the accident, um, and people's guilt feelings. And, you know, it's, it's funny because if you read about, challenger or you read about columbia many people make those comments that they felt responsible even though they were you know many many steps removed away from the actual event many people you know in the books that are about challenger in the books that are about columbia you know have a lot of deep and personal guilt because i think nasa the nasa culture imbues a lot of personal responsibility right like the victories is everyone's victory like if you're gonna say hey, I, I played a role in getting these guys to the moon or getting these guys to space. I guess you also have to say that you took a, a role in in the failure. By the way, the actual uh, photo of the uh, the, the wrench uh, is available online, and it, it's, it's pretty unbelievable. Like when you actually see this wrench just sort of sitting there between the the metal plates that make up the hull, like it's, it's unbelievable that, that that actually happened. Oops. Um. There's a great scene uh, when the um, when the the NASA review the Apollo One review board. This is NASA's own internal review. You know they when they release their findings and they talk about the spark starting under the couches and the wire insulation had been frayed, which led to a spark, etc. The report largely lays the blame at the feet of North American. And there is a fantastic scene where Lee um, Lee Atwood and uh, Harrison Storms have to absorb that report and Harrison Storms wants to fight and he wants to push back and Lee Atwood basically reins him in and says we're not going to do any of that it's it's a really good scene about sort of like the interaction of corporate culture with 
the NASA world. Right. Um, and, you know, they, they realize that they can still keep the contract. NASA's too far down the road with them. They're too committed. They can't go to another, uh, you know, aircraft company and build a new Apollo spacecraft if they have any hope of meeting Kennedy's deadline. Um, and, you know, Lee Atwood is correct. Yep. You know, you can see that they're both right. Like, you you know, you can understand why Harrison wants to fight. Um, but at the same time, you can understand Lee Atwood's... You know, his plan to just, we're just going to suck it up and we're going to swallow our pride and we're going to take our licks and we're going to keep going forward. Um, it was, just, yeah, it's pure pragmatism and he's, he's right. But yeah, yeah I, you understand and it's, it's both a sides. great scene. Yeah, yep. it's a really, really good, you know, it's funny because, you know, I mean, these guys are acting and this is a script, but I was thinking when I was watching it, like that was really, really well acted on both their parts. Yep. Um, I don't know, like, I, I just found that really, really well done. Like, you, you could see that the real-life conversation, I'm sure this is just, of course, a dramatization, but the real-life conversation probably couldn't have been too different from that in that sense. You know, James Rebhorn, who plays Harrison Storms in this, I think, honestly, he's the standout in the whole episode. He has... He has, I think, the best scenes and the best delivery in the whole episode. Like he even, he even outshines um, the guy who plays um, uh, Frank Borman in this. Yeah. Um. So that scene ends though, where Harrison Storm says, "You know, like how come we're getting raked over the coals?" And Joe Shea emerges unscathed and then lee atwood says well from what i hear you know it's anything but that and and then we sort of shift focus right and then we we leave harrison storms and north american for a little bit and then we really focus on joe shea's what can only be called his breakdown yeah he's he's depressed guilty um and you know the real joe shea you know I, honestly i think that they they are a little gentle with him because, uh, by all accounts, the real Joe Shea really did have a breakdown. And here, you know, they, they, there's mention of the fact that he has guilt, that people are concerned that he's suicidal, like he wishes he had been there. Like he makes that statement a couple times, like, I wish right. I'd been in the spacecraft. And they put a very positive spin on it by him saying, I don't know, if I'd been there, I might have been able to, to stop the fire. Uh, yeah. He doesn't look as terrible as he sort of uh, is supposed to be, and or the, as much as he complains and as much as other people are worried about him, he doesn't really look that bad in the episode. But, but in in real life, there's multiple accounts, multiple accounts of Joe Shea having what has been called by almost all the sources a real breakdown, with him having erratic behavior um, in meetings and. Um, you know, like talks that he had to give, rambling and incoherent. Right. Um, and, you know, people were that's that's a big, big part of why he was asked to step down is because they did not want him in front of the congressional inquiry. So that doesn't really come through in the episode. But the real reason that he's given this far promotion to work uh, at NASA in Washington, D.C., is because they knew that they could not put him at all in front of the committee because they were terrified that what he would say or what he would actually do. Right. So that's, I mean, that's a, a very different, uh, that's a different take on it, I guess. 
Right. Um, and, you know, I think that it's a good bit where when there's a very good scene where he and uh, Webb are, Webb, the administrator of NASA, are walking around the rain in D.C., and we're told that he's cleared by not one but two psychiatrists, and then he's offered a, what sounds like a, a golden promotion to work in, in D.C. with Webb directly. Um, and then as soon as they're out of earshot, you know, Webb acknowledges that he feels terrible. I think he, the phrase he uses is, uh, feels like an utter heel, because he knows that he's really taking Joe Shea out of really day-to-day operations so that uh, he basically has no control over anything anymore. Right, he's getting kicked upstairs um, to get out of the way. Yeah, and that you know, and again, a lot of this, a lot of this episode is about sort of like corporate and political maneuvering. Like this episode is only half about the fire; uh, half of it is about the sort of, like I said, the corporate and political maneuvering that happens in the aftermath. As everyone is trying to cover their ass, save their job, etc. Right, um, and then we shift gears into the actual congressional hearings, where we really have again uh, this sort of sneering uh, Walter Mondale just putting NASA's feet to the fire. Um, and you know the the hearing does not go well; it doesn't go well at all for NASA. Um, you know, where Mondale is citing poor quality control, uh, he cites the Sam Phillips report, which really. Uh, points to a lot of concerns that were um, made public by this, sorry, by this general that they had brought in to do a third-party review of their procedures for the Apollo project. Um, and, uh, you know, what's interesting is is Webb, in the episode, uh, feigns ignorance to the report. Like, he doesn't know what he's talking about. When, when Mondale mentions the Sam Phillips report, uh, Webb basically is caught flat-footed. He has no idea what he's talking about, and his fear is that Mondale has a copy of the report right in front of him. But in real life, Webb had read the report and had actually appended a response to it, but he had forgotten that by the time of the actual uh, hearing. So he'd actually, not only had he heard of the report, he'd read it and he'd responded to it, but he ended up essentially, to use his frame, twisting in the wind uh, during that hearing. Well, I mean, this is a you know government bureaucracy, and you know how many reports they commission and deal with and respond to i mean i you know it's it's understandable and you know i mean you know i you know it's funny i'd be curious if mondale ever saw this episode uh i mean he's he's really portrayed quite badly um and again you know i haven't watched or listened to the actual uh i haven't read the transcripts or watched any of the actual congressional hearings, but I'm sure that at the very, very least, there's audio and uh, transcripts that you could find online. I'd be curious to see how he really comes off. And then really, the episode shifts and the focus is on Borman, because they know Borman's up the the following day. Um, You know, Webb throws himself on his sword, right, tries to reason with Mondale and really gets nowhere. And they know that the whole thing rests on Borman's shoulders. and Dave Andrews, who plays Frank Borman, uh, you know, he's got a whole episode coming up. But other than that episode, this is really his big scene in the entire um, in the entire uh, series. Do you know that, by the way, um, Dave Andrews, the guy who plays Borman, is an attorney. He went to Stanford Law School. Hmm. Um, and he, he basically, you know... 
with sort of quiet competence, he is able to, and the help from the chairman of the the uh, Congressional Investigation Committee, he is able to essentially uh, quash Mondale, right? He, he, he tells people to put aside their silk scarf notions of flying and that no one wants to take undue risk. You know, he, he, he takes the Gus hanging a, a lemon in the capsule, right? Gus Grissom is so unhappy with the with the block one Apollo capsule that he hangs a lemon in it. And he basically takes that and turns it from an indictment of North American per se, but really um, a, a statement on Gus Grissom's personality. And then he is asked by the chairman of the committee to talk about Gus, Ed, and Roger. And he really humanizes the entire event. And and he does something that I think um, is, I, it's one of the best bits in the episode is where he says, it's North Americans' fault, it's NASA's fault, and then he says, it's my fault. Like, we're right. all guilty, right? We, we This is the failure of imagination, and none of us just thought this could happen. And if we thought the test was dangerous, we wouldn't have done it. Um, and in this in this manner, he is really able to turn the entire thing around. He essentially makes a buffoon out of Mondale, um, who is essentially forced to to stifle any further objections that he has. Right. And NASA lives to fly another day. It's really, it's a great performance by Andrews. You know, Borman, um, I read uh, Jeff Kluger's book about Apollo 8. Um, and, you know, that's mostly a book about Frank Borman, truth be told, because uh, he's the commander. And, you know, Borman comes across as a, a difficult guy, like a tough guy to know and a tough guy to be friends with and a tough guy to be around. And, you know, the way that, for example, Dave Andrews plays him in this, you know, that comes through. But still, he come, they, may, they portray him as sort of thoughtful and aware of what's going on around him, both locally and in a sort of more global sense um, with the entire program. And I think that it's just it's a great performance. Like that scene, you can really feel, you know, him saving literally the entire moon program right there in that scene. Right. There is uh, actually digitized by Google. Um, there's a, a printed... Um, a printed uh, transcript of the oh, testimony. Oh, you found it? Yeah, if you Google, uh, what did I Google? I Googled uh, Congressional Apollo 1 hearing. The first one, first thing to come up is a PDF, Apollo accident hearing, NASA human spaceflight. And uh, it basically is the transcript um, of the review board of the of the hearing. Hmm. All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read that thing. Um. And then we shift to the aftermath, right? Mondale is essentially quashed. Um, and then Harrison Storms is fired. He gets a call on a Sunday that uh, he uh, is being called in to see Lee Atwood. Although in real life, he was not fired. Um, he was essentially sidelined from the Apollo program. Um, but they, they lead you to believe that he is fired. Uh, right. But in real life, he wasn't. But, you know, honestly, it's very similar to what happened to Joe Shea. Like, he had a job, he had an income, but he basically was put into a position where he had no real power over the things that he cared the most about. Right. And that is that that scene closes. Isn't that what closes the episode? The scene with the two no, of them? Talking? No, that's the penultimate scene. So the penultimate scene is 
is uh, Joe Shea's in his office in D.C. basically doing nothing, wasting time and going to the movies. And he gets a visit uh, from from Harrison Storms and the two of them walk around in the rain. Right. Um, you know, because, you know, Gus, Ed and Roger died, but uh, Joe and Harrison Storms are casualties of the fire as well. Like their careers are for all intents and purposes destroyed. Right. And I, I, I think that to me, that's the best scene in the whole episode, because, you know, you feel like the two of them are able to reconcile you know, they're able to restore the bonds of their friendship, although you don't get the sense that they're going to see each other much again. But, you know, they're able to put all these past tensions behind them. And they are literally the only person who can understand the other. You know, they they right. both really came through this trial uh, and got burned to the same extent. Right. Um, and it, it uh, to me, it's really, yeah, I think it makes it, the episode was satisfying for many reasons, and but this scene really wraps it up and sort of is really very gratifying. Sort of, uh, it, it's a hard episode to watch. I, I like. I think of all the episodes, this is my second least favorite. I think actually the next episode is my least favorite, the one about Apollo Seven, just because of the way that it's filmed, and we'll talk about that next time. But uh, this is just tough. This is about sadness and loss, and then. Uh, the final scene um, is about the astronauts uh, giving Deke Slayton an astronaut pin, right? right? The astronauts' wives. So when you're an astronaut, you get a silver pin. And then when you actually fly, you get a gold pin. And like, for example, Al Bean on Apollo 12 famously throws away his silver pin on the moon because he doesn't need it anymore because he's a flown astronaut. Uh, Deke Slayton uh, never flew in Mercury or Gemini uh, because he developed atrial fibrillation. And um, the scene where the astronauts' wives give him a, a gold astronaut pin is their way of saying that they considered him as much an astronaut as anybody else, which is – I thought it was a good scene. Yeah. Nick Searcy's a good actor. You know, he's uh, he's friends with Tom Hanks. He's in this. He's He has a big role in um, Castaway, which we've discussed on over at Popcorn Drink Combo. Like, that's a very moving scene, you know, where he, he gets the pin because the pin is sort of an acknowledgment that he hasn't lived up to his ambitions and his dreams yet. And he's sidelined watching all these other astronauts fly in space, which is – at least at this point in time, denied him. Um, and then uh, it's not mentioned anywhere in the miniseries at all, but uh, Deke Slayton does. He literally gets a seat on the very last flight of the Apollo program. Uh, he flies in uh, the Apollo Soyuz, uh, essentially demonstration slash PR flight. But it's it's the last possible seat on a ship, and he gets it. Right. Um, and then and then the last thing is that we're told that the uh, Apollo 1 is renamed Apollo 204 sort of as a way for them to administratively bury it. Right. <clears throat> Although I think I think the actual name, the Apollo 204, 204, I think actually comes for the that's the number of the hull. I think that's actually where that comes from. Right. It's the spacecraft, not the mission. Right, exactly. And I guess because there was no mission, there was no Apollo 1. Hmm. Um, I thought that there's some nice touches in this episode. The astronauts wear um, the early the early Apollo space suits in this, which they don't wear 
uh, anywhere else. But if you look at, for example, the early photos of Gus, Ed, and Roger, they are wearing Apollo suits that you don't see anywhere else in the Apollo program. And they they went to the trouble to make those suits that don't look like the other Apollo suits, uh, which I thought, you know, that was work and time and money that they probably didn't have to do. Yeah. Uh, but it went that extra mile uh, for the realism. Um, if you look online, you can actually see photos of um, the what what are often mislabeled as photos of the astronauts' corpses. Um, what they actually are, they're just photos of the suits after the astronauts have been removed from them. Mm. Uh, but the suits are, I mean, the suits are really burned up. Um, you know, their burns were not enough to to kill them. They actually all died of smoke inhalation. Uh, but the smoke must have been incredibly dense, and their suits were breached at multiple points. Um, but I thought the suit thing was interesting. Well, I mean, I can only imagine the, you know, the the degree of pressure. Uh, you know, I'm sure they they couldn't survive that. You know, um, have you have you ever been to Grand Rapids? I'm not changing topics no. as much as it sounds like. If you go to Grand Rapids, I've been to Grand Rapids once or twice. Um, Chaff is from Grand Rapids, um, and there's essentially sort of two monuments to, to Chaffee. Um, there is an Apollo boilerplate capsule uh, in front of a museum that uh, has a plaque on it sort of talking about, at least it did when I was there, sort of talking about how Grand Rapids was the home to Roger Chaffee. And now there is a uh, statue of him, very similar to the statue of Jack Swigert um, at the Denver airport uh, in sort of full Apollo 1 spacesuit regalia uh, in Grand Rapids. Mm-hmm. So the, just real quick, the story, it's it's worth just 10 seconds since we're talking about Roger Chaffee. Um, this boilerplate Apollo capsule. So, you know, they built all these boilerplates that had no internal details. They were just for all sorts of testing. Um, But the boilerplate Apollo capsule um, has an interesting story. It's actually called Boilerplate 1227. And it was done for like flotation tests and and water-based tests. And it was actually lost at sea in 1970. And then miraculously, it was recovered by a Russian fishing vessel. I'm not <laughs> making this up. Who who just happened to find this thing and pull it up from the bottom of the ocean. When was that? Um, uh, in the same year, the same year they pulled it up. And then it was actually returned to the U.S. by the Soviets. But that's the Apollo capsule that's uh, sitting in Grand Rapids where Roger Chaffee is from. Um, this is really, I think... You know, it, there's the least action of any episode mm-hmm. uh, in this. And, and the, the you know, in some ways, you know, this is essentially like a, a boardroom drama, you know, a boardroom slash courtroom drama, right? With the NASA inquiry and the congressional hearings, you know, playing the role of courtroom drama. Right. Um, it's interesting to watch, but again, I, I personally find this, this is a tough episode to get through. It's It's not uplifting. <laughs> at all with the exception of borman's testimony it's not uplifting at all to me i really like this episode i gotta say i mean the 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 act you know obviously it's a terrible event but man i just it's it really digs into the everything surrounding the tragedy really well like i i thought it was really well done yeah, no, I'm. I don't want you to think yeah. that I'm not agreeing with you. It's it's extremely well done. It's just it's tough, you know, because you project yourself into it, right? Just like, for example, in in the first episode, 
you know, you project yourself into that Freedom 7 capsule with Al Shepard and you think, man, what a ride. I'd love to have done that, you know. But when you see this, you think, man, I could die in a fire like that if I was an astronaut, you know, or or it's much more um, or it's even easier, for example, to imagine yourself drummed out of your job. Right. If there was a problem on your job that you were somehow found responsible in some indirect way and they need a ceremonial scapegoat. Right. Right. So they can show that, quote unquote, heads rolled. You know, I mean, that's what's scary to me about the Joe Shea and the Harrison Storms part. You know, that's how America works. And, you know, they needed to have somebody that they could hold up. Right. And say there, you know, we have fixed the problem. Like it's I mean, it's 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 an upsetting episode in a lot of ways, not just about the deaths of the astronauts, but the whole aftermath. Uh, you know, it's very, uh, it's hard to take. It's hard to swallow. Right. Um, not a lot of, no flying in this one. No, no real CG or model work. Just really the scene of the, of the actual fire on the white room and its recreation. Yeah. Um, and that's pretty much it. Um, you know, there were a couple of white rooms, you know, there was a white room used, um, uh, you know, they had, they had white rooms for like Saturn one B's and Saturn fives, but uh, once when I was at Kennedy Space Center, uh, this is this sounds ridiculous, but this actually happened. I was once at Kennedy Space Center visiting, and they had the top arm of the Saturn V service structure with the white room on it, and it was about it was about five hundred feet away from the big museum complex, literally sitting in the weeds. Hmm. And I I was there with my wife, and I said, "That's the white room," and she was like, "What's that?" And I said, "That's the last stop." before the moon and we just wandered out to it and it was this you know it was just literally laying on the ground in, in the weeds and the whole thing was exposed and we climbed up the structure and stood in the white room and took photos i mean i'm sure that there were a, a, a couple of different white rooms but i found out later on that that was the that was the actual apollo white room uh, that they used for the manned apollo flights yeah. i was just sitting out there and they were waiting to restore it but there it was and i you know the whole time we were walking out to it and climbing on it i kept expecting somebody to be like hey you get off of that thing and <laughs> nobody did and we had about 10 or 15 minutes to sort of look around the white room and take photos of ourselves in it it's interesting um I don't know. I mean, I think, you know, this kind of, I think, marks the series low point in terms of tone. And then we after this, we start to have an acceleration and upward trajectory, because after this, of course, the program restarts. And for example, next episode is about Apollo 7. Um, and we will sort of see uh, the Phoenix like rise of the Apollo program from the literal ashes of Apollo 1. All right. We'll see you next time. All righty. All right. Thanks, everybody. We'll be back uh, next time for episode three of From the Earth to the Moon. <laughs>